You may have uh, seen that our church has the opportunity to host an, an FEC pastor's retreat. Um, starts this evening and will go through Tuesday. And so along with that, um, Steve Adrianson, who's here this morning, he's the one leading the retreat. And uh, you get a, a taste of Steve this morning as well. He's going to come and, and give the sermon. Um, he's... I don't remember your official title with FEC, pastoral care coordinator, guru. I don't, I don't know the official term, but uh, coordinator, not guru. Coordinator, not guru. So um, he asked, uh, Steve grew up in Ohio, asked if I wore Ohio State colors for him. I assured him that's not the case. You know me well enough to know that I'm not, but I'm not blue and yellow or maize and blue. I'm not maize and blue either. So um, firmly orange and dark blue, which doesn't get it. Well, it would have helped you, wouldn't it? But, but anyway, so uh, so Steve's going to come share uh, share his heart this morning, share what uh, the Spirit has been speaking to him about, and we appreciate you doing that for us. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Kurt. O-H. Okay, I know I know I'm alone now. I know I'm alone because usually if there's somebody in the audience that knows what to say at that point, they say I O. Okay. Where I live, I've lived since 1991 in the state of <clears throat> Michigan, and to say OH from a place like this in Michigan would put my life in moral danger. <laughs> and I'm not kidding when I say that. Well, good morning. It's good to be here this morning, and we sure appreciate you all as a church family, and especially through Aaron and Tim hosting this retreat. It's one of two retreats the FEC is going to be doing for the purpose of encouraging pastors in, we're doing one here in Eureka and another one in Fort Wayne this coming week. So please pray for not just the retreat, but pray for the pastors who will be there, especially Aaron and Tim, that it will be a really refreshing, encouraging time for them. So you can make that a matter of, of your prayers this week. This morning, I offered to Aaron and Tim to maybe give them the week off to maybe help them be a little bit more rested going into the retreat than they would have been otherwise. So I, they invited me to speak. And so I decided to share something that is somewhere between a testimony and a reflection. So I know that you guys are doing overviews of the um, uh, biblical books, which by the way, Aaron and Tim, the church that I attend in Michigan just started the same kind of series recently. That, I thought that was intriguing when I heard you guys are doing that. So obviously this will not be that. They will be overseeing that. But I have a, I have a reflection, testimony, and hopefully it'll be something that you can think about. There might be some things in here that you've never thought about before in this reflection as we look at some passages together. There might be some things you've thought a lot about and I'm behind you on the path of thinking about these things. Um, but no matter what it is, please uh, realize that you can take out of it whatever you want to and just allow God to guide you that way, okay? So if you could turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, we'll, we'll be keeping our finger there and looking at a few passages. Chapter 8, there is a, a passage in John 8 that shows Jesus having one of his more difficult conversations with the Pharisees the religious leaders of the day. And he's having these com this conversation, and it's 
pretty, pretty um, combative, you could say. But at one point, Jesus says something, and for years I heard him, you know, I, kind of from a debater's perspective, I thought, there you go, Jesus, that was a perfect zinger. You know, like, boy, you tell him. You know, that kind of a mentality. And for years, this passage we're going to start with fit in that category for me. But something's happened recently where I've realized, wait a second, maybe what he said for the Pharisees wasn't just for the Pharisees. In the last few years, I've been thinking, maybe it has something to do with me. Maybe there's a way that I need to reflect on it. So with that in mind, I'm just going to begin by reading it. John chapter 8, verses 37 through 40. John 8, 37 through 40. And here's, we're coming in right in the middle of the conversation. And here's what Jesus says to the Pharisees with other people standing around. All I got to do is find it. 37 to 40. I think I wrote down the wrong verses. Hate when that happens. I did write down the wrong verses, but I know it's in, you know why? Because it's in John 5, I think. Yeah, I think it's in John 5. No, it's not in John. Man, I'm glad I'm not in Michigan right now. <laughs> Holy mackerel, they'd be saying, go bucks up and down. Okay, so it's the passage. No, it is. It is in John chapter 8, I think. I really apologize. I even read it this morning. You know, you know what the problem is? I decided I wanted to speak out of the ESV today, and so I didn't check where it was on the page, because at my age, you have to be ready for where it's on the page, right? So I'm going to quote the verse for you, because I'm just not finding it on this page. Here's what the verse says, and maybe Aaron or Tim, you could help me out. He says to them, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you have eternal life. Now, it's right in the middle of this conversation. And he turns to him and he says, you diligently study the scriptures, which is not a bad thing, right? But he is making it something that it shouldn't be. These leaders are making it something that it shouldn't be. And he says, you do that because you think by them you will find eternal life. But what, did somebody find the verse? 539, it was chapter five, thank you very much. Okay, 539 and we'll read it, that way everybody can see it. Man, you guys are gracious already. Your hospitality has already been shown. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. And again, I used to think that as being a zinger, and now I realize, wow, that is something I want to avoid. How often do I handle the Bible that way? How often do I handle that bi the Bible in conversations with other people when I'm having a Bible study or a discussion? How often do I handle the Bible that way when I'm having my personal time with God? That I'm studying the Bible because I think that if I can just figure out what the Bible says properly, I'll experience something out of it. Like, I'll live on in the lane of God's obedience that 
he wants me to live in, and then lo and behold, I'll experience the blessings that I want to experience from him. Well, that's the same thing that Jesus was criticizing in the Pharisees. He says, you study the scriptures because you think that by studying the scriptures, you will have life. But no, you won't have life by studying the scriptures. The scriptures were written, my words, not Jesus, like a map to point toward me as a destination because in me is where you will find life. Well, that's a pretty significant thing. So in the last few years, I've been thinking, boy, I really want to avoid that. I really want to make, don't want to make the same mistake the Pharisees did. I want to avoid it at all costs. But even recently, I've been thinking, not only do I want to avoid making that mistake, but I want to, what's the best way to put this? receive the opportunity that Jesus is offering. Because what is Jesus offering? To use the Bible as a way to come to him to experience what? Life. Life, and it's a theme in the book of John, eternal life, which is more than just length of life, it's quality of life. A, a, a forever kind of life, a, a God kind of life. So not only do I want to avoid making the mistake they did, which I have made when I'm honest about it, but I also want to experience the life that they were not experiencing. So with that in mind, if you could turn from John 5, thank you again for helping me find it. John 5, flip over to John 13, 1, and I know for sure where this one is, so we'll be good to go on this one. John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus, I believe, in his last few minutes with the disciples, last couple hours, I should say, with the disciples, that Jacob read from Luke chapter 22, I think it was. Um, Jesus looked at this time in the upper room with him as being very special. He went out of his way to set it up. So he sent Peter and John, and what did he say? Go look for a guy walking around with a jar on his head? You know, that didn't happen every day. You know, for the disciples, like, huh, that's interesting. So Jesus is, you know, using his divinity in some unique ways, and I'm going to look for this guy, and then we're going to set up the room and get it ready. And then, as Jacob read, when Jesus sat down, he said, I, he said to his disciples, I have eagerly looked forward to spending this time with you. I've eagerly looked forward to that. So it's like, well, why would Jesus eagerly look forward to it? What, what is he looking forward to? What is he thinking? What is, what's going on in his mind? And I think that's a a thing to reflect on. I've done a lot of reflection on that in the past few years. So in John 13, 1, here's what we read. This is years later, John 13, 1, written by the apostle John who was in the room. He says this, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, you ready? He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That is the way John introduces this whole upper room conversation, which, by the way, is one-fourth of the Gospel of John, this upper room conversation. So it was very important to John to put it down in detail because it was very impactful for John and the other disciples, and he wanted to pass it on to us as the followers that would follow years, centuries, millennium later. He wanted to show them the full extent of their love, which is interesting. And if you, if you follow the conversation, it goes play by play. For years, I would speed read over this passage 
because it's so detailed. Jesus said this, then Peter said that. Jesus said thus, then Philip responded this way. It just goes play by play, person by person. But when I really reflect on it, Jesus is trying to not only convince the disciples of something 2,000 years ago, but he has something for us as well. So I'm just going to, I guess you'd say, puddle jump from one part of the conversation to another. So if you look at John 13, verse 36, Peter says something very interesting. Jesus in 34 and 35 has just expressed that he has a new command for them, and there's so much to be thought of with this new command. And then in verse 36, right after the new command is introduced by Jesus, Peter doesn't engage by saying, well, what do you mean by that? Or can you say more about that? Or how, how can we do that? Or nothing related to that. Here's what Peter says. Lord, where are you going? So right before Jesus shared the new command, he shared with them, okay, guys, the, the time has come, and where I'm going, you can't go. But I have a new command for you. So he's almost saying, okay, guys, this is it. You know, I'm, I'm getting ready to go, but I have something really important I want to engage with you about. Really important. And they say, Peter says, and later another uh, disciple says, Lord, where are you going? They're stuck on that. Now, there's all sorts of ways that we can look at that, okay? They, they were stuck on where he's going. But I'm not going to pause and do that right now. Instead, I want to say that there's at least two distinct, contrasting ways Jesus could have responded to that. One was he could have said, guys, I only have a few hours left. Did you, did you catch the part that I have a new command for you? Can't you just let me guide our time together this last time we have? Won't you guys just kind of, you know? He could have said, come on, guys, just listen up. <laughs> you know, come on. But he doesn't. The other way he could have responded is the way he did respond. He said, okay, okay, we need to walk back on the pathway here a little bit, and I need to engage your question, where are you going? Jesus. Now, we have to cut the disciples some slack here, right? If you were sitting in the room, if I were sitting in the room, after being with Jesus for three years, and all of a sudden he says, okay, guys, I'm going now, that would be beyond traumatic. We, we just have no idea. Sometimes we just picture, yeah, just think about all the miracles you would miss. Think about all the, all the things that you saw, and it's like all of a sudden it's gone. That's the first place our mind goes. But you know what the disciples were feeling? Something that's hard for us to wrap our minds around? Imagine being in their shoes, and not only had they seen all these things, these miraculous things, not only had they heard all these amazing teachings, not only had they, had they seen his wisdom in dealing with the Pharisees and others, but just think, Jesus was not only perfect, meaning he was sinless, he was perfectly loving. Could you imagine living and traveling and walking and eating meals with somebody for three years who was perfectly loving? No, you can't. Because really these disciples and the, the band around them were the only ones that ever experienced that. They, could you imagine having to say goodbye to that? The patience of Jesus, the understanding of Jesus, the affirmation of Jesus, all of those things 
they're going to be missing. And so in John chapter 13, verse 36, he asks the question. Peter asks the question, Lord, where are you going? And in a few sentences later, Jesus in John 14, one through four, we won't take time to read it. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me also. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he starts talking about heaven. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I'll come back and take you to be with me where I am. And that is a really significant thing to think about. Really significant. And you know what? For years, for years, I thought, okay, that was Jesus' final answer to the disciples' question. Where am I going? I'm going to heaven. Okay. Then, then, okay, Jesus, you're going to get back eventually to the new commandment, which he launched in verses 34 and 35 before Peter asked the question in verse 36. And then you're going to get back to the new commandment, right? No, Jesus doesn't do that. Because Jesus wants something more for them than just to experience the promise of heaven. He wants them to experience something else. And so he starts talking, and we won't, I encourage you to reflect that on, on your own sometime, just to read it on your own, outside of your own personal quiet time approach. John chapter 14, and just how Jesus was meeting them where they were at. He wasn't meeting them where they should have been. They should have been ready to talk about the new command but he was meeting them where they were at. And isn't that a great reminder for us that Jesus does that with us too? He meets us where we are instead of where we should be. Wide, arms wide open. At the very end of verse, of a chapter 14, in verse 27, look at what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He comes back to the same place of John 14, 1, where he starts talking about heaven, but he didn't stop at heaven. So one reflection I have about that that you can think about on your own and think about it in your own life is that Christ wants us to experience his peace right now, that it doesn't have to wait till heaven. And you know what? It's like, well, some of us are saying, really? Some of us are thinking, no, duh. You know, he wants us to experience his peace now. But, you know, I lived most of my Christian life since I trusted Christ in high school, practically thinking that the only peace I was going to experience from Jesus was in the someday in heaven that until then I had to, figuratively speaking, hold my breath. Maybe once in a while come up for air and, and Jesus would lob me a breath of peace just to get enough to get me through, and then I'd start enduring again, and then I'd be ready to go to heaven and experience his peace. But if the passage ended in John's 14, verses 1 through 4, then that would have been the case, right? It would have been the case that Okay, Jesus, just, I just want you to focus on heaven. And then Jesus would have just started talking about how to endure, how to hang in there until you, he called, it, called them home to heaven. But he didn't do that. Instead, he says, I want you to experience my peace. And the very last thing he expressed in this upper room conversation, if you flip over one page to John 16, verse 33, 
the very last thing he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is definitely talking about the now, the here, the present. He wants us to experience something now that we don't have to wait for. Now, there's some verses written in your bulletin if you want to reflect on them. Some of those verses are in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, and in this case, verses 4 through 9, where the apostle Paul, I really think, unpacks what Jesus is offering these disciples and us about his peace. I won't take the time to read them right now, but I, I want to remind myself and some of you who might be like me that need this reminder, Paul was not in the upper room. God used Paul to write most of the New Testament, but he was not in the upper room. John was there, but Paul wasn't. But Paul unpacks this idea of Jesus' peace in a very unique way. And he, he does it in a unique way by saying, the God of peace will be with you. And your hearts will be guarded by God's peace. So when he talks about the peace of God, he's talking about experiencing in, in a relationship with him. He's not talking about experiencing it in, a, in an experiential, emotional, one-time lob from heaven kind of way. That's not what he's talking about. I had a, a moment in my life, which I won't go into detail about, but I had a moment in my life when I was a young youth pastor and I was going to be leading a, a, a fundraiser for the congregation to send a group of elders to the country of Albania. And I was the youth pastor, so I had to be the MC, you know, and I had to be karaoke leader for the fundraiser and I was going to be the one, the life of the party, right? And I had nothing in the tank. I had nothing in the tank. I, had, I didn't have any sources of encouragement that hopefully Aaron and Tim will discover this week. I had nothing in the tank. And I remember going into my office right before all the people were out there clapping, they're making it real fun, and it's like, gosh, I am so overwhelmed by stuff. I've got two toddlers at home. I'm not getting any sleep. We've just recently uh, become the temporary guardian of a teenage girl whose family is really, really struggling, and I'm and she's not doing well with the transition to my wife and I being her guardian, and I'm just, and, and I get down to my knees and I pray, Lord, in essence, I pray, Lord, I just need your peace right now. I just need your strength. And in a way that wasn't audible, it wasn't like I could have put it on a tape recorder, I had a sense that God responded by saying, Ask me for something else. Ask me for something else. And at that moment, I realized, God, I'm asking you to, so to speak, lob your peace from heaven to me. But Lord, what I really need is you. What I really need is your closeness. Will you please be close to me? And I, have, I experienced at that moment and that evening a very special personal touch of the likes of which I don't think I've experienced more than two or three times in my whole journey of following our Savior in the last 50 years. Why? Because I was 
experiencing God's peace through his closeness, through my relationship with him. And that's what Paul talks about. And that's what Jesus offers. He offers us my peace, not just a peace that we would generate on our own or that would be based on some external happiness quotient that we would experience. When you read through not just the upper room but other places, you realize Christ doesn't want us to wait till heaven and to settle until waiting to heaven, to experience tastes of heaven now. And you know what? To be honest with you, I was a pastor for many years, and I didn't fully understand that. I kind of got it, but I, I didn't fully understand that. And for that reason, I didn't put my heart in a place to experience what he had for me. The same is true of his joy. Look with me at John 15, verse 11. John 15, verse 11. In the middle of this conversation, again, we're puddle jumping. Jesus said this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Well, whatever he's talking about with them, he's not saying, hang on till heaven, is he? He's saying, I want you to experience it now. I want you to taste it now. And there's some other verses in Philippians 4. They just happen to follow the other ones. Philippians 4, 10 through 12. That talks about his joy being just independent of our circumstances. Independent of whatever we're facing in life. And Paul talks about this contentment, which would be a synonym for joy, this contentment of no matter if I'm well-fed or hungry, I can still experience God's joy. Now, we can't experience our own happiness if we're hungry. We can experience our own happiness if we're well-fed, but we can't experience our own happiness if we're hungry. But Paul says, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether, and he lists several contrasts, he says, Experiencing God's joy is independent of my circumstances. It's independent of what's going on in my life. It's independent of the emotions I'm feeling, the way people are treating me, how life is treating me. It's independent of all of that. Wow. And I can experience, what in Jesus' words, my joy, his joy, especially when I turn away from trying to make my own agenda kind of my Christmas list for Jesus. Jesus, I'll, I know how I'll experience your joy. Here it is, just these two or three things. Just my, my relationship with so-and-so, just, just providing this much for my family, just, that, that's all I need. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking, I'm not like, you know, looking for a genie experience here. Well, kind of I am, you know? But when, when I ask him for those things, he wants me to have something deeper, something more permanent. My joy, he calls it, and I can experience it now. And you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that I experience his joy more often when I'm going through difficult times than when I'm going through times of overflow or times of abundance. Some of you can resonate with that. Then in chapter 15, verse nine, Jesus mentions a third thing he wants us to experience. And the third thing he wants us to experience is his love. 
So in verse 9, he says, as the Father has loved me, now think about that, as the Heavenly Father, the first person of the Trinity has loved me, the second person of the Trinity, so have I loved you. And then he says this, abide in my love. Abide in my love. And the best way to translate that is to stay close to my heart of love for you so you can experience now just how much I love you. God doesn't just want us to know that he loves us as a fact. God wants us to know and taste he loves us as an experience. I mean, it's hard enough to get past the fact phase, right? If I were to sit down and talk with most of you, or if in the past you would have sat down and talked with me, and if I were to look you in the, in the eyes and say, or if you would look me in the eyes and ask the same question, do you believe that God loves you? Do you really believe that God loves you? Do you really believe that God knows everything about you and he still loves you? You would, like me, be like, I think so, I want to, but I, I, to be honest, sometimes I can say, well, I can believe that God would love somebody else even though they're unlovable more quickly and easily than he could love me in my unlovability. So just getting the fact of God's love, just opening our hearts to that reality is hard enough. Then to go the second step and allow him to actually put his arms around us, spiritually speaking, that's a whole different ballgame. That he wants us not only to know that he loves us, but he wants us to taste it, experience it, sense it, feel it. When you think about all the things Jesus could have talked to his disciples about in the last few hours before he was betrayed, arrested, tortured, crucified, what is he talking about? He's not talking about instructions of how to reach the world. He's not talking about strategies of how to start churches in different areas. Those were both on his heart, both very important to him. He wasn't even talking about developing disciples and how they could pass the baton to other people like he was passing it to himself. That was very important to Jesus too. But you know what he's talking about? Their experience. I want you to experience something. I want you to experience my love. I want you to experience my joy. I want you to experience my peace. Do those three words sound familiar to you? I put them in different order than they appear in the upper room. Love, joy, peace, does that ring a bell? The first three parts of what? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, for years, if you look at that paragraph of Galatians 5, I would read the fruit of the Spirit this way. It's contrasted with the works of our sinful nature, with the works of the flesh. So when it's contrasted, it says the works of the flesh are these, and it gives a bunch of behavioral examples that, ain't, that aren't good. Okay? And then he says, to contrast this, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. For years, I minimized what Paul was saying there to the fact that, okay, 
instead of living sinfully this way, I need to treat people non-sinfully another way. And that other way is love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, self-control. Against such there is no law. I abbreviated the passage. So when, when, I, when I'm treating people like that, I'm contrasting with that. But what Jesus is saying is there's more to just displaying when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. There's more to it than that. There's absorbing. There's absorbing. Before I can display love, joy, and peace, Jesus knows I need to absorb it first from him. I need to absorb it first from him and allow that experience. So I just want to read one more passage in John as we conclude and then just maybe give a couple questions for reflection. Look at John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. I know we're jumping all around John, but you've already been gracious and hospitable and patient with me when I couldn't find the first passage, so I figure you'll be patient with me in this regard. Look at chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. Jesus is talking. He says, the thief, referring to the evil one, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Sounds an awful lot like John chapter 5, doesn't it? You don't come to me to have life. But Jesus came to us that we might have life, his kind of life, not how we would fill in the blank, how we would define it, but his kind of life. And then he says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And I've come to understand that what Jesus is probably doing there is he's referring back to Psalm 23, probably. And in Psalm 23, we read about the Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't say the Lord will be my shepherd in heaven someday. The Lord is, present tense, my, not just somebody else's, shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And he reflects all the way through that psalm, David does, and at the very end he says, surely your goodness and your everlasting, unfailing love will follow me all the days of my life. God not only loves us factually, but he chases us down so that we experience him emotionally, spiritually, relationally. He wants us to taste his love, joy, peace now. So with that in mind, I'd encourage you to reflect even on Psalm 23 if you want to as you think about this more. So when I started thinking about this, and with this I'll conclude, I, I think... You know, when I look back on my journey, and again, I've been following Jesus faithfully for 50 years now, but that doesn't mean that I've always been experiencing what he has for me to experience. I've been faithful, but maybe I could have absorbed more, and I could have then impacted more people. I could have reflected God's love more if I had absorbed it more. 
But my, my first sense is there's something about me when I first saw this that is like, I kind of feel guilty keep opening my heart and receiving what Jesus is offering here. I kind of feel guilty because didn't he do it all like we sang about earlier? Didn't he do it all sacrificially to lay down his life on the cross for our forgiveness if we simply place our faith and trust in him? Did, didn't he do that? Why would I ever want anything more? If I kind of ask for something more than that, it's like, gosh, I'm being ungrateful or I'm being selfish or I'm not being content in the, in the forgiveness and the salvation he's always given, already given me. But from Jesus' perspective, he wants me to want more. He wants you to want more. He wants you to be open to receive. He wants me to be open and to receive his love, his joy, his peace daily in an ongoing way in our relationships with each other to be fleshed out that way. That's what the new command was. The new command was help each other experience my love more, to put it in so many words. On the other hand, I've thought about this and I've thought, okay, God, you are offering me your love, your joy, and your peace. And sometimes I would rather have a smooth life or a problem-free financial situation or no health issues. So I think, okay, I'm asking God to bless me this way, which is this deep, and all those things are significant. They're significant to God too, but he's, he's wanting to give me this depth of experience of him. He's not just wanting to lob blessings from heaven in kind of a commendation of me being faithful to him. He's wanting me to walk beside him and taste his heart of love for me. And I believe he wants the same for all of us in his family. So with that in mind, will you join with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact, the fact, the fact that you actually love each of us, that you love us, and that nothing can get in the way of your love for us, not even ourselves. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your patience. And Heavenly Father, we also want to thank you in a way that is beyond the grace you've already given us. You also want us to experience you and your love, your joy, your peace, and other things from your heart for us even before we see you face to face, even before we're made perfect. So show us what it means, each of us individually, Father, to open our hearts to experience what you have for us. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who so clearly portrayed that to us. And everyone said,